The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. Well, good afternoon or good morning, depending where you are. It's, this is another in our series of teleconferences that we do on breaking issues, this one on Saturday's election in Taiwan. We are joined by two of America's great experts on Taiwan, uh, Shelley Rigger, who is now at Davidson College and head of Chinese studies there and Brown Professor of East Asian Politics, and Doug Paul, who is Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. If I went over all of their accomplishments, I wouldn't have, we wouldn't have time for the call today. So what we think we'll do is have Shelley talk for about seven minutes on the election itself, and what conclusions we should draw, and then and Doug talk about the international or the cross-strait implications as well as the implications for U.S.-Taiwan and U.S.-China relations. So, Shelley and Doug, thank you so much for doing this. They both have served on the board of the National Committee for, for uh, many years, and it's a pleasure to welcome them. Shelley, why don't you kick it off? Okay. Well, thanks a lot. It's uh, good to be here, and I'm very happy to have a chance to reflect a little bit on uh, what was actually a pretty interesting election. For the past at least 10 years or so, I've been waiting for Taiwan's elections to settle into some kind of routine pattern that would make it unnecessary to you know, go over there and, and observe and pay close attention. But so far, they are showing very little evidence of actually becoming routine or uninteresting because each election has uh, some surprises packed in. So on the one hand, um, this one maybe was less surprising than previous ones in that the primary result that people are focused on was anticipated and pretty much uh, widely uh, projected. That is that Tsai Ing-wen, the DPP candidate, would win the presidency. And in fact, I was in Taiwan for the past week, and when we visited the uh, KMT headquarters before a couple days before the election, the KMT officials that we spoke to said the same thing. You know, they said we're we understand that we're in a very difficult situation with the presidential race. Uh, so you know, even even the KMT's own people anticipated that result. But what was not anticipated was the um, landslide victory for the DPP in the legislative elections so that the DPP now has a real super majority in the, in the legislative UN or the LY, which means that um, unlike the first DPP president, uh, Chen Shui-bian, from 2000 to 2008, Tsai Ing-wen is not going to be constrained by a legislature dominated by the KMT. Uh, she's going to have basically full reign to govern. She should be able to pass her proposals through the legislature. And that creates some interesting challenges, obviously great opportunities for the DPP, but also some challenges, The probably the most obvious of which is that whatever is accomplished will redound to the credit of the DPP, and whatever is not accomplished on the to-do list will be held against the DPP. You know, there's no blaming someone else for the uh, things that don't get done. And on that to-do list are mostly domestic agenda items. So while, you know, we're used to thinking about Taiwan politics very much in terms of cross-strait relations, and there is uh, a tendency, especially outside of Taiwan, to kind of ask the question, okay, what does this mean? What, what, was, what does this election say about cross-strait relations or about Taiwan voters' thoughts about cross-strait relations? In fact, um, cross-strait relations was not the, the driver in this election. The driver was really domestic issues, in large part because Tsai, the DPP candidate, uh, said from the very beginning that her plan was to do nothing, to alter the basic situation in the Taiwan Strait, you know, 
maintain the status quo is her refrain, her mantra. So that that really threw the emphasis onto those domestic issues, which was where Tsai Ing-wen wanted the emphasis to be. And throughout the whole campaign, I guess it's worth saying, the DPP really set the agenda uh, for this for these elections. The KMT was wrong-footed from day one. Um, they had to change their presidential candidate in October. They nominated someone in July, had a change in October, um, and they had all kinds of uh, challenges just organizationally. And even things like choosing a vice presidential running mate, which should be something where, you know, you, you the party making that decision has control over the optics. Uh, the KMT managed to find a running mate for its presidential candidate, Eric Jew, who was uh, ended up being a lightning rod for all kinds of criticism, mainly related to her uh, real estate wheeling and dealing. So the DPP was controlling the agenda, and they really pointed the agenda toward domestic economic concerns and not sort of the traditional uh, Taiwanese preoccupation with GDP growth and, you know, just increasing the amount of economic activity, but focusing more tightly on uh, income inequality and employment. The uh, feeling in Taiwan is that uh, GDP growth is is redounding to the benefit of the very wealthy, while the not very wealthy just continue to have to compete for, uh, you know, places. In the, so all this, all this growth increases the price of everything without increasing wages and incomes at, at the bottom end of the <laughs> distribution. So there's a lot of economic dissatisfaction, and I don't know that the DPP or Tsai Ing-wen has great answers to those problems, but they were definitely rewarded for calling attention to economic issues. So, you know, in that context where the the cross-strait issue was pretty much neutralized and the DPP was winning on the economic issues and just winning on the uh, general confidence of the people. You know, people are really tired of the KMT leadership of Maingjo. It just was kind of a perfect storm for the KMT, and uh, the DPP ended up pretty much running the table. So that's an overview, and maybe uh, you know we can elaborate on more of those things if if the callers are interested. Um, after Doug has a chance to talk a little bit. But, but what happened with the change of candidates before we go to Doug? Because I think that it, it just looks so hopeless when they change presidential candidates. Why did Julie Lun not run initially, and why did they change midstream? Well, something that I heard that I thought was pretty interesting at one of the post-mortem sessions on Sunday, Taiwan always has these sort of instant uh, Monday morning quarterbacking sessions the day after the election where you learn a lot in a hurry. And um, one of the people, actually a KMT person speaking, said, you know, Julie Luan didn't want to be the – he didn't want to be nominated for uh, mayor of Shinbei City back in 2014 because he wanted to be available for this presidential election. But he was strong-armed into doing that. Then he made a commitment, you know, in order to get elected mayor, he made a commitment not to resign before his term was up. So then when the presidential election rolled around, instead of sort of respecting that decision, the KMT leadership again was kind of like, all right, now you got to step up, and and he pushed back. Um, So I don't know what other reasons he may have had for not wanting to run in the first place, uh, but he didn't. And that left the door open for another candidate, a woman, Hong Xiu-ju, who was just not prepared. And I'm not sure that she really intended to be the candidate, but certainly uh, her performance as the candidate uh, was 
just not consistent with the possibility of winning, put it that way, um, in large part, partially temperamentally, uh, but in large part because her position on cross-strait relations was even more pro-China than uh, the Ma administration, and this is with an electorate that's increasingly skeptical about China. So she just was not an acceptable candidate. Um, some of the KMT legislative candidates were uh, dropping out or having second thoughts about running under the KMT banner and so on. Uh, so ultimately, they put the squeeze on Eric Ju again in October, at which point he agreed uh, to step up. But, you know, now he bears the weight of, you know, this failure. Uh, so I don't know what that portends for his future. Uh, we'll come back to some more questions about the election itself, but let's go and hear uh, from Doug. Well, thanks very much. The, um, you know, the United States was uh, heavily involved in Taiwan's previous race in 2012. At that time, she had a studied ambiguity about, and wouldn't really answer questions about what her policy toward China would be. The White House got nervous about that. The U.S. sent signals of discomfort with her after she visited the U.S. And uh, cross-strait relations, what Taiwan would do with China, and the possibility of drawing the U.S. into tensions with China for things uh, for reasons that have only to do with domestic politics and Taiwan uh, motivated the U.S. to stand off from her. She learned from that experience when she was defeated in the election. They studied it. And the remarkable uh, thing has been that in the past almost a year, uh, she has maintained a very steady, uh, as Shelley just characterized, a very steady approach on the mainland talking about maintaining the status quo respecting previous agreements, the constitutional things. She didn't directly meet every concern China has, um, but she managed to be ambiguous and uh, reserve uh, Taiwan's dignity and, and autonomy in the process of, as Shelley said, focusing on domestic issues. Uh, for the U.S., this was very welcome news. The U.S. has been uh, is not eager to get drawn into unnecessary conflict with China unless China itself provokes such a conflict over Taiwan, and it's conveyed that message repeatedly. And immediately after the election on Monday, uh, former Deputy Secretary of State Bill Burns visited Taipei as an official, uh, or I should say unofficial emissary of the Obama administration, and uh, to convey America's continued interest in the peace and prosperity and the cross-strait stability of the Taiwan uh, region. That uh, message, by the way, is being complemented by current Deputy Secretary of State uh, Blinken's visit to Beijing this week to uh, reinforce that message while doing other business as well. Um, the mainland's reaction to the election has been one of calm and uh, uh, reserve, uh, if not jumped in. I'd, I've heard personally, as Shelley and others, uh, many of their concerns about the DPP winning, but they're, they're keeping their powder dry for the moment. They're looking for someone to say something that either they can embrace or something that they can attack. Uh, but they're trying to be um, uh, temperate in their responses so far. Uh, this is uh, that's a good sign. We have uh, almost four months before Tsai goes into office, and the key uh, then will be her inaugural address as president of Taiwan on May 20. Um, that will be where the language that will set the tone for her administration at the outset on how to deal with cross-strait issues will be uh, articulated. Between then and now, you're going to have a lot of emissaries going back and forth. The U.S., of course, will stay closely engaged through the people who deal with Taiwan normally, the chairman of the American Institute in Taiwan and our Taipei representative, and uh, others will visit as well. But the mainland will also be opening its own contacts, both through scholars and, and, and perhaps through officials, uh, to try to um, encourage Tsai to, to adopt language in her inauguration and the policies for her new administration that China can use as a basis for continuing to try to reach trade and other agreements with Taiwan going forward and to maintain the, um, the status quo that she's articulated she wants to maintain while meeting China's need to have some 
framework that references or can be construed to reference a one-China principle in Taiwan's outlook for the four years ahead and under the election. Now, uh, Taiwan's relations with the region will also be important. Um, I think the fact that she has not uh, ignited uh, either fury from Washington or fury from China uh, is good news for the region because most of the countries that deal with Taiwan on a de facto basis don't want to be forced into a, a position of having to choose between the mainland and Taiwan. That ambiguity helps them. Japan has been warm, and it's uh, congratulations to Taiwan. And, and the Taiwanese population generally, and the DPP in particular, lean toward Japanese uh, uh, out of historical sentiment and out of uh, a belief that Japan is an important alternative uh, market and investment destination to the mainland on which there's a, a growing sense in Taiwan of over-dependence. Um, how the region reacts and how calmly they take it is going to be important to one of the big objectives of the new administration in Taipei, which is to become part of the, the growing skein of regional and global trade arrangements so that Taiwan can draw more prosperity at home by being involved abroad. And so they want to be part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP. They'd like to be part of RCEP, the Regional Co uh, Cooperation Economic uh, Program, which is uh, intended to facilitate uh, supply chain uh, participants reducing the amount of uh, cross-registration and special tests that have to be made so that you can send parts into processing facilities uh, along the whole chain through the East Asian region. Um, Taiwan also has a big ambition, to, as Shelley said, to get the economy going again. And there I would observe that Taiwan is suffering, in a sense, uh, as is Hong Kong, as to a lesser extent is Singapore, and you might even say Spain and Italy and elsewhere, from the effects of globalization, where the emergence of more than a billion workers in India, China, and elsewhere has uh, taken away opportunities for people to land those uh, middle-class jobs that you can get. And this has been a, a more acutely felt in Taiwan and Hong Kong because these were long the entrepots who were the Chinese-speaking populations were able to, to leverage their uh, understanding of the culture and the language into getting higher-paid jobs as uh, compradors between uh, the outside world and China. Now China has its own people to do that for the most part. There's less opportunity for young people in Taiwan and Hong Kong. And that was reflected in this, um, in the protests of 2014 and then in this election with a very high rate of turnout for the DPP by people under 30. So and that's going to be a continuing issue. How well uh, Tsai Ing-wen's new administration can uh, find incentives and find good destinations for Taiwan to diversify its manufacturing platform and diversify its markets. Uh, that's not something that's being tried for the first time. That's been an ongoing uh, desire of the Taiwan business community, and they've not had great success except at the lower ends, such as in uh, textiles, footwear, apparel. Uh, on the high-end technologies, they've had a harder time finding a place to go that doesn't do as good a job for them as China has done. So this may be a more challenging area for her going forward. I'll finish up with that opening um, remark, and we can all take questions. Terrific. Well, first, let's have a discussion. I mean, Shelley, first a few um, is this a, a fact, you know, things I've just forgotten, I think, which is, is this the first time we've had a legislative and presidential election on the same day? Uh, no, the 2012, correct 2012 me, Doug, if I'm wrong, but I'm, I that's think right. That's, 2012 was right. Yeah, in so 2012, 2012 they had, the they were, uh, simultaneous. Right, because prior to that, they were on different days, and the, the effect of a presidential election was less on the legislative election. Right, so, uh, and, uh, if I can just point out one of the big challenges that this, uh, kind of innovation has created is there's this very long transition. By constitution, uh, Taiwan's inauguration has to take place on May 20th, so, but the new legislator, legislature is seated on February 1st. Right. So right. The, by putting the elections on the same day, they've created a very long transition. And that opened the door for crisis number one for Tsai Ing-wen, which is the resignation of the cabinet um, and the cabinet, at least, is saying, you know, well, you've won the election, so you need to form a cabinet. 
But, you know, the DPP is obviously not prepared to form a cabinet. It, it is, in fact, not uh, the president-elect's job to select the members of a new cabinet. So, you know, we're already in trouble again uh, because of this long transition. Let, you know, this was the lowest turnout election since elections began in Taiwan by a significant number. Obviously, KMT voters did not turn out. Um, are we seeing something that is just cyclical, throw the bums out, because it's been eight years that we see in many democracies? Or is there something structural going on here where we'll see the KMT either reform or split you know, between the old school and kind of the new school, and that young voters went overwhelmingly for the uh, DPP? So structural or cyclical? Um, probably a little of both, but I think the structural factors are really, really serious for the KMT. Uh, one of the scholars that I listened to last week said that according to their polling, the youngest voters, so those between, you know, about 18 and 30, break for the DPP about four to one. So, uh, you know, for every KMT voter in that age group, there are four or five um, DPP voters. So that's that's really bad for the KMT in the long run. So definitely the generational element is there and working against the KMT. Another factor that's working against the KMT is that the leadership over the last few years has just drifted farther and farther and farther away from the party's own base. And in fact, uh, Mainjo, the president, picked a big fight with the leader of the sort of uh, electoral center of the KMT party. That's Wang Jinping. The, the speaker of the legislature is really the guy who, who has the most influence and um, the best contacts among the uh, KMT elected officials. And instead of using him as a bridge between the party elite and the party's own elected officials, the KMT leadership essentially tried to expel him from the party. And so that's another big structural problem that I think the KMT desperately needs to revise, uh, to resolve in order to be able to do something about the other structural problem, which is the generational change, which is going to require changing their party image and, to some extent, their party platform. All that said, though, certainly the fact that after eight years under one political party, people would be ready for a change is something, you know, we would absolutely expect so in a way, I think this electoral result was kind of overdetermined. There are more than enough reasons to explain why it happened. And I'll just Ma, add that you know, eight years ago, um, Ma Ying-jeou was elected with an even larger percentage of the voters uh, because they wanted to throw the bums out after eight years of Chen Shui-bian. That's and exactly so that, right. A, yes. The second point I would make is that the uh, uh, the voter turnout in this instance bears further research. Some of the Taiwan uh, specialty centers on voting will be doing the research, I'm sure. But uh, the first impression is that if you see for months that the party that you support is going to lose by 20 or more percentage points, you may be not inclined to turn up to vote that day. And there does mm -hmm. appear to have been a 2 million uh, short KMT right. voters in the election. Because mm -hmm. that, that's what they're certainly sitting around figuring, trying to figure out: is this, is this, you know, is this something permanent, and we need to basically reform ourselves, or is it just a cyclical? Oh no! They, they, if they don't know that, then they're really in trouble. Because <laughs> I mean, you look at that. You could draw a grid of the KMT, and you have about 16 different party centers, each of which is, considers itself most important and drawing on resources. One of the first things that was reported to the New York Times by people inside one's camp was they're eager to go after the KMT's assets, which they allege were accumulated illegally during years of dictatorship and, and control. And they're talking about reform of the party law. So there's going to be multiple, um, multiple levels of attack, both within and from without, on the KMT. So this is, there's a 
if they don't address change, they're going to be they're going to be non-existent pretty quickly. Well, my next well, let me finish this one set of questions, then get on to the you know what's you know there is a not favorable uh, there are not favorable precedents in Asian democracies about not going after former leaders, including on Taiwan. So, the, yeah. but let me let me just put that aside for a second and and what i mean did ma ma's unpopularity was is is stunning what what went on there especially in the context of the agreements that the cross strait agreements that he entered into depending on whose data you looked at and added significantly to income for taiwan people that even if there were some who didn't benefit, that overall you're looking at, you know, the, the situation in Taiwan, the economic situation in Taiwan would be worse without these agreements. Yet there is a broad consensus that people don't want anymore. What happened? Shelley? Well, you know, I think you're you're asking two questions. One is a question about uh, cross-rate economic agreements and the other is a question about uh, Mind Joe's leadership. On the first of those, the uh, cross-strait agreements, you know, I think a lot of people are, they just don't know anymore. They're, they're just no longer, you know, four years ago, Tsai Ing-wen was defeated, I think, in significant measure because she could not say anything that would make people feel confident that she was going to be able to keep that, progress on cross-strait economic agreements moving forward. And they thought, yes, we need we need to keep doing that in order for our economy to thrive. Now, I don't think it's so much that people say, oh, no, cross-strait economic agreements are bad, you know, we, we can't allow them, as they're just not sure. Because the perhaps, uh, and this gets to the other question, Mining Joe's leadership, perhaps he over-promised on what those agreements would yield, but the perception is that they did not yield enough, and they may have put Taiwan in a position of some political vulnerability. So people are beginning to weigh the economic benefit against the political risk of intensifying, uh, you know, the cross-strait economic relationship. But I think really important to this is, and and here I'm really glad to hear Doug talking about sort of the challenge of globalization, you know, um, aggregate GDP growth is meaningless to an unemployed youth. And after a certain point, it just starts to feel like, you know, driving up, the, somebody has money, so they're they're buying uh, housing in Taipei, so the price of housing is going up, but a lot of other people just see no improvement. The actual salaries, not not in real terms, but in nominal terms, uh, salaries for university professors in Taiwan have not increased in 20 years. So uh, for a lot of people, you know, you can you can point to GDP growth and you can say it could have been a whole lot worse and all of that. And what they say is, this is not working for me, and mm -hmm. I want to try something different. I think Shelley's onto something there, and this is, um, I think it's a universal phenomenon. In my view, it underlines the Trump and the Sanders campaigns where people feel in the U.S that the middle class is, is, is slipping back, not moving forward. And in Taiwan, they have the, the, the music uh, rhymes, but it's actually at a higher decibel level. Taiwan is a special case in this respect because it has 171 universities, and all of them receive money from the central budget. The budget really hasn't been increased. They've just added more universities. And that puts that downward pressure on universities, disposable income to pay professors and build centers, etc. But it also produces a disproportionately large number of people who think after four years of college that they should get an office, a secretary, and a car when there isn't a labor market to absorb them. This is, this is a really acute problem. It's also acute in Hong Kong and Singapore where education has been promised to everybody. It's the base for every election. I'm going to take care of your kids, get four-year college, 
tuition free, whatever it takes. And then the kids come out and they can't find those jobs. So there's a there's a number of systemic problems in the societies, and particularly acutely so in Taiwan, that uh, need to be addressed. It's not just a matter of trying to do a better trade deal with China. What does she do with, the, for instance, the trade and services agreement? What happens now? I was just at a session this morning where uh, her person for these things, Joseph Wu, briefed the Americans on what's going on. It's a very high priority to pass the legislation that led to the uprising of uh, young people in the Sunflower Movement in the spring of 2014. This is the bill on oversight of negotiations with the mainland. And that's what has to be passed as the first order of priority, perhaps even before Tsai takes office. That's what they say is their first order of priority. So it's the, but then what happens to the – then there's oversight, they reopen the oversight. The, the, the oversight so what happens – A big part of the Tsai campaign, and Shelley, correct me where I go off, a big part of her campaign has been uh, Taiwan consensus and transparency and that one of the allegations they repeatedly and I think fairly successfully used against the Kuomintang and President Ma was that he was not transparent. Uh, and this was given a very sharp point uh, in November when Xi Jinping and Ma Yingzhou suddenly announced they were meeting in Singapore. And, and Tsai made a very strong case that this was not something that had the support of the people necessarily because people didn't know about it. It hadn't been done just transparently. And so I think they're trying to get transparency first, they have said as an official position of the party, then they'll move on to approve the agreement if it meets the tests once it's transparent, that it's been properly over, overseen by the uh, legislature. Are we transparent? Is the United States transparent in negotiating trade agreements? Nobody can be transparent negotiating trade agreements. Of course it's not. Impossible. I mean, it's, it's kind of like it's a, it's a theory where if you <laughs> you'd have every special interest in the world lining up at your door, you know, well, the, arguing the, the, about the, every every political promises in reality do not have to jive in order to be successful with the voters. <laughs> so it's it's a funny it's a funny concept. The um, time has the the benefit of kind of being in the position that Richard Nixon was when when he opened up relations with China, that his flank was very much covered, and he was able to do things that a probably a Democratic president would have had more difficulty. Is there some chance that Tsai Ing-wen can be the, the Richard Nixon of cross-strait relations and make further progress? than mine Joe could make. Shelley, you want to take a crack at that first? I, I, was I want to make a slightly you step up. <laughs> well I, I would I would not compare I mean my first thought is not about her as a kind of Nixon going to China. My first thought of her is she has an overwhelming mandate personally and in the legislature. And my experience in practical world of politics is strong leaders can make good policy. The weaker you get, the more likely the policy you pursue uh, gets worse. Um, and so she should be looking at the very fundamental things. Now, I heard this morning from Joseph Wu uh, something that surprised me and showed real insight on the part of her team, which is that Taiwan, if it wants to address trade issues, has to address the fundamental complexity of the legal structure inside Taiwan, which is constantly fighting liberalization of trade or investment. And this, this insight, if she follows through on it, could be a liberating force for the Taiwan economy uh, because they do have a tremendously uh, uh, tremendous barriers to all kinds of international activity, despite the fact that they're a very successful trading nation, much as Japan did, because they have a direct inheritance from Japan in their legal system. All kinds of things are not permitted unless explicitly permitted, rather than the American system, which is you can do anything unless we forbid you to do it. They need to reverse this in Taiwan, and I was very pleased to hear him mention that. And with this kind of mandate, they can start addressing those things and getting the legislature through without having to make big side deals to dilute every decision they try to make, at least in the early phase. And I'm hoping they put their political capital into something like that. If she also wants to put political capital into uh, finding a way to put cross-strait relations between the DPP and the Communist Party in China on a more stable basis, um, this is the time to do it. It's not going to be later when she gets weaker.
as all politicians do get weaker. Shelley? An example of um, that kind of, at least in the initial phases, wisdom and determination to do something different on the sort of protectionism front is the whole pork issue. You know, um, beef and pork have been a source of enormous consternation to the U.S. as Taiwan has blocked uh, imports over the last, I don't know, almost, I think that this thing has been going on for more than 10 years. And the latest debate is over uh, allowing American pork to be exported to Taiwan. And there's a big pr- protectionist backlash against that of um, the pork industry in Taiwan. And they are traditionally, uh, by and large, DPP supporters, but Eric Ju, the KMT candidate, had basically said, expressed his, his sympathy with the pork industry in Taiwan, but uh, Tsai Ing-wen refused to say uh, that she was going to side with Taiwan's domestic producers when it came to the pork issue. So, you know, even before the election, when it was actually quite potentially quite costly, um, I think that her confidence that she was going to win and that she was going to need to be able to have some flexibility and, and room for maneuver on it on an issue like that, um, you know, that confidence enabled her to, to stick to her guns a little bit. So I think uh, it is possible that the DPP, you know, it's ironic, maybe they won't be the Nixon to China on China, but they might be the Nixon to China on domestic uh, protectionism, mm-hmm. which is a long-standing KMT practice. You know, the KMT right. has not satisfied the uh, trade partners, starting with the U.S. and working its way all the way down the line. Uh, the KMT has left its trade partners very dissatisfied when it comes to uh, domestic protectionism and that whole policy universe. So, um I think this is a this is a real opportunity for the DPP. It's and it's also it's kind of uh, re, it's mutually reinforcing with some other things that DPP is trying to do, including in diversifying Taiwan's trade relationships and also getting into TPP, which will certainly require a lot of the kinds of reforms that Doug's talking about. Shelley, do you agree? I'm sorry. I was just going to say, at the risk of going down too steep in the pig swill here, uh, Joseph Wu today did lay out some steps for the, to try to get this issue resolved. One is that the Taiwan pork producers can't export their pork because they have infestation of hoof and mouth disease, which makes this issue all the more important to keep imported pork out of Taiwan because they can't get their pork into the other markets. He wants to help them get rid of the disease, help them get into other markets, help them diversify their their, their sales and, and, and implement food safety regulations on labeling that will give consumers and the farmers the ability to market better and, and then compete better and try to raise the level of competitiveness of Taiwan's own farmers. Is it fair to summarize, let's talk about the mainland's reaction now. Is it, Doug, is it fair to summarize your view by saying they're taking a wait-and-see attitude at this point? They are, and it's not just wait-and-see. They're also going to be probing. And they're not just going to sit in Beijing. They're going to have people going right. back and forth trying to figure out what, what basis. Now, Tsai has said all along to reassure the voters that she has channels. Uh, the Chinese have told me over and over again there's no channel that reaches Xi Jinping in Beijing. Uh, from Tsai Ing-wen, but there may be lots of people talking, and Taiwan, and of course the mainland has the ability to pick up all sorts of things from all kinds of members of the DPP, official and unofficial. Um, but the question now will become who really speaks for the other side, and how do they communicate to each other? Uh, and the Chinese uh, have a hard time showing flexibility at the outset in almost anything, and I think we won't see a lot from them at first. Uh, it'll take some. Uh, and, and Tsai will not want to give anything away at her first iteration. So I think we're going to see some months of going back and forth. I imagine Beijing will like to get us involved. And, uh, some days they'll want us to be involved, and some days they want us to stay out of it. And, uh, and I, our 
my recommendation would be for the U.S. government to just stand back and reassure peace and stability and keep mentioning the Taiwan Relations Act and uh, hope, that, hope that China will find a way to uh, reach out to, to Tsai uh, with a, a, a credible intermediary. Shelley, you agree? Yeah, I think uh, both sides really would like to come to some kind of an arrangement that will allow them to avoid a rupture. Um, but neither side is going to want to give in any more than they have to. So in some ways, that puts a little bit of uh, leverage on Taiwan's side, just because, you know, for Taiwan, that the whole threat of kind of democratic pressure is more realistic. And, and, and Xi Jinping just recently showed that he can do whatever he wants in some sense by agreeing to meet with Ma Ying-jeou after years and years of saying, you know, such a, such a meeting would be impossible. Um, so, but I think on both sides, they're going to try to wait as long as possible to begin making concessions, but it would not, it will surprise me, I guess, if no concessions are made because the cost of a rupture in the relationship is high for, for both parties. But one thing that was pretty interesting about Tsai's behavior immediately after the election that I think is certainly a signal to the world, a signal to uh, Beijing, first and foremost, but also to other governments around the world, the first speech she made on the election night, she came onto the stage and she was surrounded by uh, five people, um, her running mate, Joseph Wu, the Secretary General of the DPP, who's just been meeting with Doug today, uh, and uh, her campaign manager, Chun Ju, and two other uh, party officials. All of the people on the stage with her, with the exception of her running mate, I guess, and, and Joseph Wu in some ways, um, but certainly the, the three people on her left side are all people who have a good record of traveling back and forth to the mainland and interacting successfully with people in the mainland. Absent from the stage at that very important moment where she's, you know, accepting the victory for the first time were any of the sort of traditional DPP old guard who might be more associated with Taiwan independence and uh, kind of a sinophobic mentality that we would associate with, say, the Chen Shui-bian administration. And I think that was no accident, you know, to make sure that the faces that the that the world saw in, right out of the gate are faces that are known and fairly welcome in the mainland. So neither of you think there's any, there's not a serious risk of the mainland uh, firing some diplomatic warning shots, such as ending diplomatic truce uh, or doing something like that where they're just warning uh, the DPP not I, to take aggressive stances on independence. I don't think that's very likely before the inauguration. Um, you know, there there may be some rhetorical um sort of public rhetoric aimed at squeezing Thai and making sure that the domestic constituency in Taiwan doesn't become too complacent. Um, but I think they, they're likely to give her the opportunity to express herself over the next few months and in particular at the inauguration. The one thing that does give me a little bit of pause, though, in my overall optimism is that the magnitude of the DPP's victory in the legislative UN could uh, spook people in Beijing into thinking, you know, this means that the DPP party leader is going to be able to do whatever she wants. And, you know, that with uh, Chen Shui-bian, they were scared to death of him anyway, even though he was up against a KMT-dominated legislature. Now they've got... Um, uh, they're facing the possibility of the DPP really being unconstrained 
by the KMT, and that could cause their, you know, their sort of policy GPS to start recalculating in a negative direction. Um, Cy did feed a bit of this herself in an interview sometime back with uh, uh, Commonwealth Magazine, in which she said, electoral mandates sometimes force change. Uh, words to that effect, and uh, her point was that China has to respect the, the fact that Taiwan has democracy, and that once the people speak, China has to change the terms on which they deal with Taiwan, and the Chinese have got that deep in their DNA not to accept that. Certainly, the Communist Party doesn't want to get into that kind of um, mode with Taiwan, and if they see things heading in that direction, I would expect the warning signs to be to be hoisted on the, on the mainland and in their international dealings. Uh, but as, as uh, Shelley said, they've got the next four months to work on this, and so I don't think we'd see any uh, important uh, things like taking away Taiwan's diplomatic partners in Central America until they know where she's coming out on, on the uh, crucial questions about what is the status of Taiwan within China's desired world of one China. And, uh, and give, that could come very quickly if she decides to balk. But so far, since her visit to Washington last June, she's been fairly consistently avoiding doing that. So uh, the outlook is, is uh, much less for a rupture and, and a uh, set of uh, import, important Chinese policy moves than for more continuity. How distracting, given what's going on in the Chinese economy, which is requiring full attention of the leadership, given the anti-corruption effort has now entered the uh, the Taiwan, the the, um, yeah. uh, uh, the the Taiwan Affairs Office of the State Council, how distracted do you think the the mainland kind of authorities on the, the, those who are making policy vis-a-vis Taiwan are, and what are the implications of that? Well, I think I mean, the short answer would be from the people I know in Beijing who are as close as you can get to Xi Jinping is that he makes his own mind up on Taiwan. He doesn't need the Taiwan or the foreign ministry to tell him what to do because he served in Fujian for 10 years. He was up close to Taiwan. He knows a lot of people from Taiwan, especially KMT um, people who have got business interests on the mainland, and therefore he largely thinks for himself on this subject. Yeah, and this is not necessarily a good thing, right, that the um – the picture that he has from those experiences might be pretty partial. Right. Yeah. And they say, they say me, because he has self-confidence, he, in his own judgment on Taiwan, he could actually uh, react more negatively than would be prudent uh, if there is adverse news coming out of the island. Lindy, let me. Uh, I have been so involved in this conversation, I have forgotten to open it to the, uh, the, the the callers. So please, if there's some callers with some questions, please uh, open it to them. And at this time, if you would like to ask a question, please press the star and one on your touchtone phone. You may remove your question from the queue at any time by pressing the pound key. Again, if you'd like to ask a question, please press the star and one keys now. We'll go first to Oral Carr. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Thank you. Um, I had a question with regards to um, there was a lot of talk in the Taiwanese press about this young female Taiwanese um, national who essentially rolled out this Taiwanese flag in Korea and, and the kind of outcry that that that, that caused. Um, do you want to spend a little time? I'd, I'd be interested in your thoughts on your analysis on this and how much this impacted uh, the, the Taiwanese election. When I, I saw an interview that Chen uh, Chen gave to, uh, to Hu Zhiqiang, uh, and they were talking a little bit about this. How much do you, do you think this factored into the overall election? I think it's impossible to really say statistically, um, but I, observing, you know, being there on the uh, voting day on Saturday morning as that story kind of pinged onto everybody's Facebook feeds, it seems to me that it had to have made a difference and that perhaps a handful of legislative districts that were close might have been, might 
have gone to the Greens, might have gone to the DPP because of that case. Um, it, as one of my friends put it, all of a sudden it's as if nothing else is going on today except this Jodzius case. Um, you know, it's election day, but nobody was nobody was Facebooking about the election. Everybody was just Facebooking about Jodzius and posting images. You know, including DPP people posting images of the ROC flag, posting pictures of themselves with the ROC flag. Um, it was just the the perfect perfect example of how the PRC's tendency to allow or even encourage really uh, negative popular discourses around the Taiwan issue to proliferate online just got in the way of Beijing's actual policy toward Taiwan. You know, this was basically internet trolls undermining years of effort by the Taiwan Affairs Office and others to cultivate a, a more friendly feeling among Taiwan people toward the mainland. And, you know, one case like that undoes literally years of effort. There's um, there's no evidence so far that this was something that the authorities top-down decided they would do. There's some anecdotal evidence that this was done by the Korean boss of the K-pop group that she's a part of in order to keep his market open on the mainland. Um, somebody somewhere probably said something stupid to them to make them go through this ritual, but it was a totally inappropriate. Um, the age of the girls always 16. Uh, there was just everything was wrong about the way this was handled. And there are some hints that, the, that there might be consequences for whoever handled it so stupidly within the Chinese system. Thank you. And as a reminder, next. if you would like to ask a question, please press the star and one on your touchstone phone. We'll go next to Max Kwok. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Hi. Good afternoon. Uh, just tagging onto Steve's point, uh, I was just wondering when, why the uh, voter turnout is this low, given, you know, you know I mean, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is, like, why uh, voting is not mandatory in Taiwan when the KMT had a chance to, you know, maybe legislate, uh, man mandating everybody to vote on election day. Thank you. Well, I think voting is not mandatory because the vote, perhaps in part because the voter turnout is historically very high in Taiwan. But um, that's, you know, the 66% the turnout figure is of all the voting age population registered, or not registered to vote, but all of the voting age population of the country. So, and furthermore, there's no absentee voting of any kind. So everybody who wants to vote has to go home to their hometown where they have their household registration and vote in person on the election day. So it's a very, very high cost kind of voting. Um, there are a lot of students in Taiwan and there are a lot of Taiwanese who live overseas who are included on the registry. So. That that 66% is actually not low, um, you know, by kind of international standards, but it is lower than uh, previous Taiwan elections. And I think the biggest reason that it's lower is just that um, the the likelihood of of Taiwan victory was so high, and everybody had kind of pretty much accepted that she was going to win, that for a lot of people making the effort to vote just seemed kind of pointless. Um, and I think it did seem disproportionately pointless for blue voters or KMT voters, many of whom were not enthusiastic about the KMT candidate to begin with and who really just were not going to drag themselves halfway across the island to vote for someone who was going to lose anyway. I agree Got with it. all of that. And I just say historically... Um, it would have been a difficult thing to enact mandatory voting. Uh, the, the DPP and Green voters 
uh, always smelled a rat in the way people would come back from the mainland and vote. And they'd say it was either strong-arming by the PRC or KMT bribing people to return in order to get a, a stronger blue vote for their cross-strait policy. And so I think it would have been difficult to have legislated mandatory voting uh, for that reason as well. And why don't they do absentee voting? Uh, what, it, what's the theory? <laughs> yeah, I think I don't think it's so much theory as politics, right? It, um, the impetus for that kind of reform usually comes from the DPP, and I think the DPP looks at it and says, if we allowed absentee voting, that would increase the turnout by voters living on the mainland who are thought to be predominantly KMT supporters, although it's really hard to say. So I think nobody has wanted to be the champion for um, absentee voting. And also there's just, you know, there is a lot of distrust among Taiwanese and they they face, they have faith in these elections. They trust the election because Every ballot is counted by hand in the polling station in front of the public, and every ballot is held up. And, you know, you can see the the votes counted. And you, everybody, all the parties have people in the polling stations, you know, taking cell phone photos of the vote tally. And I think it, anything that would introduce the possibility of fraud including modernizing the voting process. You know, some people say, how can you not have voting machines? Um, but the reason they don't have voting machines is, I think, not unrelated to the reason they don't have absentee voting, which is that all of those things create a distance between the voter and the vote result that is a, a space for a loss of confidence in the process. There's an additional technical factor that um, for, for a long time, establishing yourself, your identity, was simply a matter of saying, here I am, this is who I am, this is where I'm from. And the United States would not accept uh, Taiwan passports as a basis for automatic visas for years because at the very root, almost anyone could declare himself to be this guy from this part of Taiwan and uh, get himself a, a, the proper registration documents and then with that a passport. Uh, Taiwan more recently has cleaned this part of its uh, record-keeping up, and we now have an American automatic visa for Taiwanese to come to the U.S. on the basis of their passports. Uh, but for a long time, it was a very messy uh, process. Maybe it's easier now to legislate for absentee voting if they choose to do so. Lindy, any other questions? We do have another question. We'll go next to Barry Naughton. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Hi, thanks uh, for a really illuminating discussion. Hey, in the economic issues between uh, Taiwan and the mainland, obviously a really big one is the question of how to handle uh, high-tech enterprises, especially Taiwan's crown jewel, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation. China has floated the idea that it would buy a stake. Taiwan Semiconductor wants to open a big 12-inch fab in the mainland. What's, what's the DPP going to do about those kind of very, very intense uh, technological frontier issues? I heard a really interesting conversation about this on Sunday uh, that the uh, TSMC leadership has kind of come to understand and, and accept that there needs to be some compromise on these issues and that, you know, the, uh, that the DPP is going to, that a DPP-led government is going to expect to have some ability to influence or affect how um, high-tech manufacturing goes to the mainland. And rather than uh, force the issue and, you know, have to go to legislation and that, um, they seem to be prepared, that is to say, uh, Taiwan Semiconductor seems to be prepared to negotiate a little bit more and to um, make promises like, for example, leaving R&D functions in Taiwan, um, moving the, the technology, not moving the most advanced technology to the mainland, but 
you know, trying to uh, recognize the importance to Taiwan of having that company continue to be a contributor to employment on the island as well as, um, you know, on the mainland. In my experience, Barry, the um, the best protectors of the technology and, and the control of the production uh, have been the executives of those companies themselves. Um, like in the United States, the Taiwan officials I've encountered who've tried to get in and either legislate or regulate the levels of technology and, and, and the transfers um, have been usually years behind where the technology was, and they were protecting, you know, protecting ancient practices uh, when you had to be concerned about something else. Now, I do think there's scope for uh, Taiwan's new administration to pay a lot of attention to the very sizable funds that China's putting together, as you know, multi funds, multiple funds that put $30 billion in the last case to assist people to acquire uh, assets or shares of companies. And I think they'll have to watch that very carefully because when the numbers get that big, uh, maybe the better judgment of these executives could be affected. But I, generally speaking, I would not uh, be uh, from the outset suspicious of the people who run these companies. Uh, you might watch, see if some of them are in trouble, they've fallen behind in technology, and then they may need desperate measures. But uh, the, the ones that really make the difference on Taiwan are very skillfully managed. I want to thank, thank I, I want to thank uh, Shelley and Doug for what has been a terrific one-hour conversation. I think it's shed an enormous amount on the Taiwan elections and what we can expect, certainly in the next four or five months and, and even thereafter. But thank you so much, and thank you all for joining us.